verses 1 through 32. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would, said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. 
And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha. We are glad you are here with us this morning, as has already been said. If you look in your worship folder, and this is not your first time here, you may be a little confused, since I am not Spencer Peterson, and that's who it says is preaching this morning. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha, and uh, one of the privileges of being an elder is getting to preach uh, a few times a year. One of the responsibilities that is a privilege, but sometimes an unexpected one, is being called on to preach when someone gets sick. So Spencer is sick this morning, and uh, the worship folders are printed midweek, so that's the reason my name is not in there, is he got sick after they were printed. So there you go. And if you've been here for a while, you might also be wondering, well, Chris Wachter is the lead pastor here and isn't preaching one of his main responsibilities. So when someone's sick, shouldn't the guy who we pay to preach as one of his main things be here doing the preaching um, rather than uh, someone else? And the reason is Chris has today off. Uh, He's spending today with his family and had it off already. And that's one of the great things about having a team of people as elders and not just one person is that Uh, With two pastors, there's the flexibility that you can have a day off on a Sunday, which if you're the only pastor is simply not possible. But also, then if someone gets sick, there are other people to fill in so you don't have to lose that day. So he's spending the day with his wife and his kids, and that's why he's not here. Uh, Rest assured, he does earn the money we pay him for preaching throughout the year. So (laughs) have no doubt of that. Contrary to the joke, he does not only work one day a week. That's uh, the joke for pastors. Oh, you're a pastor. You work Sundays and have six days off. It's like, ah, that's not exactly how it works. So, we are in Acts 26, as you just heard read. Thank you, Stephanie. Excellent job with that. So, if you've been here for any of our Acts series, uh, you know that Paul's story that was just read, we've been over this a couple of times. This is not new. Paul's been making his defense to various groups of people, Uh, We saw all the way back in Acts 9, almost a year ago now, or three quarters of a year ago, where the story that he keeps uh, relaying to people actually happened. So if this sounds familiar, that's good. It means you've been paying attention somewhat. Uh, It is familiar. So because of that, we are not going to go over every piece of what Paul just talked about. We're going to look at some of the unique parts of the story. But first to set it up a little bit, so Paul... uh, had been doing some different church planning missionary journeys around Asia Minor, eventually made his way back to Jerusalem. Some stuff happened there. People were trying to kill him, which has not been uh, atypical throughout this series. It's happened several times. And through a course of events, he ended up uh, involved with the Roman authorities. 
and making a plea to them and making his defense to them. And so he'd make a defense to these people and they'd be like, why do we care about what you're saying? This has nothing to do with Rome. This has nothing to do with anything we care about. It's something about religious stuff and your religious laws and we just don't care. But now you're kind of in the system, so I don't know what to do with you. So I'll just kind of throw you in prison and then the next guy will come in a few years and he can deal with it. So that's happened a few times and finally now, Paul is kind of moving up the ladder in kind of the Roman hierarchy, and now he's talking to King Agrippa, who is the uh, ruler under Caesar of a little larger area. Uh, so he is making his defense today in front of kings, queens, and other prominent leaders, uh, Roman authorities. And again, since we have heard this many times, we're not going to cover all of it. We're just going to look at some of the unique parts. If Perhaps this is your first time, or you haven't been here for most of the series, or you just really love this story and would like to hear some more. You can go back, uh, if you go to SoundCloud, uh, Hiawatha Church's sermons are all on SoundCloud, and there you can find these three sermons also talk about Paul's conversion from a few different angles. The March 17th sermon from Acts 9, which is where the conversion happens, the March 24th sermon from the second half of Acts 9, which is kind of the fallout of that, and you see some cool things in responses to Christians of the time. Because Paul at this time was someone feared and hated by Christians, and God comes to a Christian and he's like, you need to go to Paul. <laughs> and the guy's like, are you crazy? Do you know what this guy's done? I don't think that's a very good idea. But he does. And then the October 6th sermon from Acts 22, which is another of Paul's defenses. So, if you're interested, you can see, you can listen to those sermons. But right now, Paul's making this defense. Now, keep in mind, the rulers and the leaders have already declared Paul innocent. They've already said, like, you haven't done anything against Rome. There's really no reason for you to be on trial. There's no reason to make this defense. Last week, two of the rulers were talking, and one of them says, you know, if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar and said he wanted to present his case to Caesar, we could have just let him go. Like, he hasn't done anything wrong. What's going on here? At the same time, there have been mobs of people, mainly Jewish religious leaders or people under the Jewish religious leaders, kind of working for them covertly, that have been trying to unjustly murder Paul. And not just sneaky little, like, we'll get him in bed while he's sleeping, or we'll get him while he's on the way to the temple or something like that. These are, that, it's been some of that, but also people who've been stirring up mobs. And to the point where they're, last week, and a few times before, we've seen Romans actually have to go and take garrisons of soldiers and go down to protect Paul, because they're worried about him being killed, like, in the street, in broad daylight, by a mob of people. So this is what's going on. But in the midst of that, Paul isn't pouting. He isn't grumbling. He's not demanding his rights. He's not trying to cut a deal with Rome, saying, you know, I appealed to Caesar, but now I realize I didn't need to do that. Can we work out some deal? I could bribe you or we can do something. He's not doing any of those things. He's preaching about Jesus. Why? What is it that causes a man in this situation to not worry about the fact that people are actively trying to kill him on an almost daily basis. To not worry about what's happening with Rome and how in going to Caesar, he could end up being killed for it if Caesar doesn't like what he has to say. But those aren't things he's worrying about. He's not trying to get out of this. He's just preaching about Jesus. Why is that? 
Two main reasons. He knows his mission, and he knows the power of God. In the passage that was just read, what does God say when he meets Paul, when he appears to him? He says, I have called you. I have called you. I'm going to send you. You're going to preach about me, about Jesus. You're going to go to these different places. I've called you to do that. And Paul knows. He knows it was God who called him. He knows it was Jesus who spoke to him audibly. And he believes. He believes in the power of God to see that through. That God says, you are going to do this. And Paul says, "All right. if you say that I'm going to do it, it's going to happen. And no one can stop that from happening. He also knows his mission. He knows his mission is to proclaim the gospel to people, to tell people about Jesus. Not to grumble, not to demand, not to spend his time fighting for his rights, not to spend his time trying to sue or get arrested all these people in the mob that have been trying to kill him. That's not what he's trying to do. And right now today, he's trying to persuade his audience to believe what he believes about Jesus. And we're going to look at some really cool pieces of that. So, This idea of him not pouting, grumbling, demanding his rights, not trying to cut a deal, just focused on Jesus, preaching Jesus, there's a ton of applicability in that. It's interesting, a few of the community groups recently have been talking about prayer and studying some different things about prayer. And one of the groups, one thing that struck them is how little in the New Testament, as Christians pray, that they pray uh, for like personal justice. Like, oh, these bad things are happening to me and this is unfair. God, please make that stop. Or, God, please protect me from these people who keep trying to beat me up and keep trying to kill me and take vows and say they're not going to eat anything or drink anything until I'm dead. But you don't see that happening in New Testament prayer. A quote from Tim Keller about Paul and prayer in the New Testament. It is remarkable that in all of his writings, Paul's prayers for his friends contain no appeals for change in their circumstances. It's certain they lived in the midst of many dangers and hardships. They faced persecution, death from disease, oppression by powerful forces, and separation from loved ones. Their existence was far less secure than ours is today. Yet in these prayers, you see not one petition for a better emperor, for protection from marauding armies, or even bread for their next meal. Paul does not pray for the goods we would usually have near the top of our lists of requests. Paul is not trusting in his circumstance. He's not trusting in a positive outcome of the immediate circumstances. He's trusting in God. He's trusting in God's sovereignty and God's plan. And the same way that he does, we can do that. We can trust in God's sovereignty and God's plan so that we don't need to lose our minds or be crippled with fear when life is tough. Now it's important to point out in terms of New Testament prayer, uh, like Tim Keller, that quote I just read, the things they don't pray for, they also never pray for persecution. So you don't see any kind of masochistic or sadistic streak in how they pray. They never pray, oh God, I pray that we can get arrested tomorrow and I can get beat again so I can prove how much I love you or how devoted to you I am. God, I pray that I would be thrown into prison for another two years. How great would that be? How great would that be for people to see that? They never pray for persecution. But when it comes, their main focus is not that it would be removed. Their main focus is the gospel. So it's good to have both of that balance. Because there's those two extremes, right? You can go to the extreme of always praying that nothing bad would ever happen. 
But you can go to the other extreme and pray that all you'd experience would be bad because you think that's going to build you up in God's sight or in the sight of other people, which isn't true. But in trusting in God and his sovereignty and plan, this frees us and allows us to do two things that aren't possible if we uh, are not trusting in that. First, like Paul, we can see every situation as an opportunity to declare the gospel. So Paul, these situations where these mobs come and are trying to kill him, or this situation today, he's not thinking, oh, how can I say something to these people so they don't lose their minds and beat me to death? He says, no, wow, this is great. Here's all these people standing here. I can tell them about the gospel. And hopefully I'll get the message out before they crack my skull open. But he sees every opportunity, every situation as an opportunity to declare the gospel. That's what he's doing this morning. He doesn't come to King Agrippa and say, all right, King Agrippa, you're in charge. I've got a list of complaints. Here are some people that need to be arrested. They've tried to kill me unjustly. Here are some other things that are going on. It's like, no, man, I get to present the gospel to King Agrippa, to some of his court, to his queen, to all these people. We can see every situation as an opportunity to declare the gospel. Second, we can see times of suffering and injustice that they can be used by the Spirit to sanctify us. So some things you do see as you look at prayers in the New Testament. Prayers in the midst of persecution, what do they pray for? They pray for more boldness. They pray that their love would increase, both their love for God and their love for the people persecuting them. They pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen them, enable them in these situations that are either physically painful or very fearful, that they would be able to present the gospel and declare it, that they would have boldness for that. They pray that their faith would grow and would continue, that it would both increase and that it wouldn't fail. And they pray that they would increase in knowledge of Jesus' love. This is not easy to do. And Scripture does not pretend that this is easy to do. As you read through Acts and Paul's life and then read letters in the New Testament, these are difficult things to do. But with the Spirit empowering us, it is possible to do this. It is possible to see situations as gospel opportunities. It is possible to see times of suffering and injustice as times that the Spirit can use to sanctify us. So that's one aspect of the message today. We see that we can trust in God's sovereignty and plan, that we don't have to fear, that we don't have to lose our minds in anger or rage because we've been treated unjustly, that we can trust God. Second, we can see Paul's life as an apologetic. An apologetic not meaning, oh, I'm sorry, but apologetic meaning an argument, a defense for the gospel, for Jesus and who he was. And there's a couple different aspects of this that we'll look at. First, Paul was a terrorist and a murderer. If you don't know anything about Paul or you're not familiar with Acts, you might read this and think, oh, Paul, yeah, he must have been this great guy and just did good things. And then Jesus saw, oh, here's this guy doing great things. I'll bring him onto my team and he can do more great things in my name. No, this is a guy who is actively killing people. And not just people in general, which, you know, murder in general is a bad thing, but he was killing Christians. So he was actively working against the main thing that God was doing at that time. He was a terrorist and he was a murderer. He was going about instilling fear in Christians, hunting them down from city to city, uh, 
approving of their death, standing watch, giving approval. He was a Pharisee, meaning he was involved in the religious establishment. And although he wasn't like one of the top dogs, he had some level of prominence. So as he, as other people were being killed, he would give approval. And basically in that was giving the approval of the Jewish religious ruling body. But notice, Paul in this defense, he doesn't try and make himself look good. He doesn't try and make excuses for what happened in the past. He's honest about it. He's like, yeah, I was a murderer. I was a terrorist, not using those words, of course, but I was hunting and killing Christians. Everything I was doing was against what God was doing. I thought I was working for him, but I was his enemy in every action I was taking. That's who he was. And then what happened? This terrorist and murderer turned Christian leader, pastor, and church planner. A man who was hunting and killing and trying to destroy the church now is going out all around Asia Minor declaring this gospel, willing to sacrifice his life, and we'll see in a minute, sacrificing much more. The turning point, he met Jesus. Like the offering song today, our sins were many, but his grace is more. Paul's a great example of that. And so are all of us. So am I. Don't ever think when one of us is up here preaching, oh, they're a pretty, that's a pretty good guy. Jesse's a pretty good guy. And Jesus must have seen him and thought, oh yeah, he's a pretty good guy, does some nice things. I'll bring him on to my team. No. In the literal sense, I was not a terrorist or murderer. But God makes it clear in Scripture. He says, Jesus says, oh, you think you're not a murderer? Have you ever hated someone in your heart? Have you ever cursed someone in your heart? Because in that moment, you are wishing they would die. And so you are a murderer in God's eyes. Oh, you've never had sex with someone who's not your spouse, you're not an adulterer? Have you ever looked at someone lustfully? In your heart then, you have committed adultery with them. That was your desire. In God's eyes, you are now an adulterer. So there are none of us who can look at Paul and say, oh, God, I thank you I'm not as bad as he is. It's like, no, we're all evil. We all need Jesus. But the hope is, no matter how evil we are, no matter how evil we know we are or think we are, God's mercy is greater. God saved Paul. God saved me. God can save you. He can save anyone. And it's his desire to save people. There is no sin so great that God can't carry it. There is no sin so great that Jesus' death on the cross doesn't cover it. There is no sin any of you have committed, or maybe in your minds or hearts are committing this very moment, that Jesus Christ cannot forgive, cannot deal with, and cannot wash clean. None. So, he turns from a terrorist and a murderer to a Christian leader, a pastor, a church planner. And through his new allegiance to Jesus Christ, he loses everything. So you think, oh great, he was this horrible guy, and now he's a Christian, everything is going to get better for him. What does he lose? He loses his family. He loses his friends. He loses his standing in the religious establishment. His entire religion, all the religious rulers turn against him. They're some of the people that are trying to kill him at various points. So all these people who loved him and cared about him are now his enemies, some to the point that they're trying to destroy him and end his life. He loses all of that. So what is it 
that causes him to think that's worthwhile. You might think, okay, like if his life got better, if he got really rich or life got comfortable or something like that, sure, maybe he'd lose those things. Of course, you'd feel badly like losing your friends and family, but if you're rich and you're popular in these things, you'll get new friends, or at least people who pretend they're your friends. You'll get new family. You'll get these other things. But we see in Paul's life, that's not the case. He talks about in one of his other letters, he says, I face persecution all the time. I'm in danger from enemies. I'm in danger from friends. I'm in danger at night when I lay down and sleep. I'm in danger during the day. I'm in danger on the road when I'm traveling. I'm in danger when I'm in cities. I face hunger and thirst and persecution and beatings and floggings and imprisonment. imprisonment. The list goes on and on. He says, these are the things my life has now become. So what makes that a worthwhile trade? The hope in the promise that God raises the dead. Paul traded temporal things, physical comforts, the companionship of family and friends, for something eternal. From uh, the beginning of Acts 26, Paul's making his defense. He says, now I stand here on trial because of what? My hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And what is the hope? What is the promise that God made that Paul's hoping in? Verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Paul's hope, the thing he's betting everything on, his hope is the promise God made that God will raise the dead. And so Paul knows no matter what happens to him physically, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how horrible it is, as he's being beat up, he's not like, oh, this is so great, isn't this fun? No. But he knows that he's traded that for something greater. He's traded that for the promise that God will raise him from the dead. And this hope is not just something Paul pulled out of thin air or thought, well, maybe this is true, this would be great. The Old Testament testifies to this, Paul in this defense. The promise made by God to our fathers, uh, the end of verse 22 and verse 23 from today's passage, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Paul says, all the way back in the Old Testament, they prophesied that the Christ would come, that he would be killed, and that he'd raise from the dead. And that he'd be the first, meaning that there are others who will follow and be raised from the dead after him. And then posts this question to King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now, King Agrippa was Jewish, so he was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So when Paul says this, do you believe the prophets? He knows that King Agrippa does. So it's kind of this thing of, all right, King Agrippa, you say you believe this, this is what it says. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that God is a God that can raise the dead? And not just that he can, but that he has. And he is, and he's going to continue doing so. The hope and the promise that God raises the dead is the core of our faith. The cross is the climax of the story of the gospel where Christ dealt with sin, dealt with our separation from God. He died in our place. He took the punishment we deserve. But our hope for the future is in the fact that God raises the dead. That someday after we've died, we will be raised from the dead and we will be face to face with God like we are right now. That we'll hear Jesus speak physically. That we'll see his body. That we'll be able to hug him or give him a high five. That we'll know what color were his eyes, what color was his hair. How tall was he? Those things won't matter in the grand scheme, but we'll see him in the flesh. Because Jesus 
took on humanity and he still has it. Jesus still has a physical body for all eternity now. And our hope is that God raises the dead and that someday we will be with him forever. Never to die again. Never to fear death again. The empty tomb is the stamp of approval that God put on what Jesus did on the cross. He died on the cross and God said, yes, you did it. It is finished. It worked. And I'm going to raise you from the dead and that's the proof to everyone that the cross worked. If it hadn't worked, Christ would not have been raised. But he was. It did. Paul acknowledges that this is the core of the faith. In 1 Corinthians, a letter he wrote to a church in Corinth that he helped start on one of his uh, church planning missionary journeys. He's talking about people who say they believe in Jesus, but say, well, we don't believe in this whole raising the dead thing. And Paul's basic answer is, what are you saying? It doesn't work if Christ didn't raise the dead. From 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's argument, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And Paul says, if Christ wasn't raised, that means there's no God's stamp of approval on what happened to the cross, which means you're still in your sins. You're still separated from God. You're still his enemy. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, nothing else that happened mattered because it didn't work. And he goes so far to say he who spent his life after being converted preaching the gospel, traveling and preaching the gospel, he says, if Christ has not been raised, everything I've done is absolutely worthless. All my preaching is in vain. My faith is in vain. If we have hope for Christ only in this life, we're to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. You hear people sometimes and they'll say, well, I don't know if Christianity is true, but even if it's not true, it's still the best thing in this life. No. If Christianity isn't true, you should not follow it. You should not be sitting here. If what I'm preaching right now isn't true, me standing up here preaching is a waste of my time. And I would literally be better off at home in bed asleep doing nothing than doing this. Because if it isn't true, then it doesn't matter. Then it's not helpful. And if God is real and this isn't true, then we're still his enemy. And if we say that Christ is the way God dealt with sin, but it isn't, we're preaching a false gospel. And so we're just making ourselves more enemies of Christ. But Christ has been raised. Our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. We do not have hope for Christ in this life only, but in this life and eternity. We have the hope in the promise that God raises the dead. Also, the resurrection is the best explanation. The best explanation of Christ, who he was, his life, his death. If you take all that he was, all that he said he was, all that he did, the resurrection is the best explanation for what happened after his death. Luke is the author of Acts. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor and a physician. He was a man of science, of logic of reason. He wrote the gospel and he says at the beginning, I thoroughly investigated everything. He's like, I didn't just hear one story, thought, oh, this is a cool story. There was some guy. He was actually a God, not just a man. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. I should write about that. 
He says, no, I investigated everything, every detail. I wanted an orderly first-hand account. So I talked to people who saw it happen. I investigated what happened. He says in Acts 1-3, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Notice the pieces of his logical, reasoning, doctor mind coming through in that. He makes a point to say, uh, he appeared alive to them by many proofs. Some of these proofs we see in other places, he lets people touch him so they know he's not just a ghost. He eats food with them. He does different physical things so they know that physically he's been resurrected. And Luke says, he appeared to people during 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. He's like, this isn't just something one person said happened. There are a bunch of people that saw him, a bunch of people that he talked to over more than a month. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. Paul adds to this, again in 1 Corinthians 15, where we were just talking about the resurrection uh, being necessary, and without it our faith is vain. Earlier in that chapter, Paul says, I delivered to you, the Corinthians, as of first of importance, what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul says, no, there's evidence. There's proof. He appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to all of the twelve at the same time. But just in case you think, well, these were the guys in Jesus' inner circle. Maybe they all got together and this is some plot and they're just kind of lying and kind of in cahoots with each other. Paul says, oh, and then there were those times he appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. And most of them are still alive. You don't believe me? Give, I can give you names. You can go talk to them. You can go say, hey, Paul said that you were there when Jesus appeared after he died and was supposedly raised from the dead. Did that happen? Oh yeah, this is exactly what happened. And then you go talk to someone else and they give the same story. And then someone else and they give the same story. The resurrection is the best explanation. The resurrection is also the best explanation for the changed lives of the disciples. Before Jesus' resurrection, Matthew 26, this is uh, when Jesus has been arrested and he's going to go to trial and be crucified. All the disciples left him and fled. All cowards. And these are some of them. Peter said just a few hours before this, Jesus, I will never leave you. In fact, I will die in your place. I won't let you die. And then a few hours later, he runs away. The Gospel of John says they were so frightened, they ran when Jesus was arrested. They were with him when he was arrested, and then they all fled. That one of them, the soldiers tried to grab one of them and got a hold of his clothes, and so he like shimmied out of his clothes and ran off naked. He was so afraid, he didn't care. Later in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial, Peter is sitting kind of outside in a courtyard area where he can see Jesus. He's a little distance away. And people are coming up to him and they're like, hey, aren't you one of the guys who was with Jesus? You look familiar. No, it's not me. Then someone else, hey, you know, your accent, that's Galilean, isn't it? Aren't you one of the people who was with Jesus? They're all from that area. And Peter says no. And then eventually Peter begins to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. People who said, we'll die for you. We'll never let you die. We'll never leave you. Cowards, every one of them. 
However, after Jesus is raised from the dead, after the Holy Spirit comes, when it's no longer their own power, their own will, their own abilities they're trusting in, but it's God's, then what does it say? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, this is when they're on trial before the Jewish religious rulers, the same group of people who got Jesus killed. And Peter stands up, gives this sermon, basically says, you guys killed the author of life. We believe this is what he did. This is who he is. Now when they, the religious rulers, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So Peter and John give this defense and the religious rulers are like, what just happened? There are these two hick fishermen from the boonies and they just gave this defense. How is that even possible? And the only thing they, they could come up with is, well, these guys were both with Jesus and spent time with him. So you see that change from cowardice to bravery after being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Also, if you look at how did the apostles die, uh, you might not be able to read it, so I'll go around the horn. So this is the 12 apostles. Matthew was impaled by spears in Ethiopia. James was thrown off a wall and then clubbed to death. And there are two James, so don't be confused. Jude was crucified by Magi in Persia. We'll skip John for a second. Matthew or Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Philip hung by iron hooks upside down. Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. The other James was beheaded in Palestine. Simon was crucified in Persia. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Bartholomew was flayed to death by a whip in Asia Minor. And then John died in exile on the island of Patmos. So of the 12, 11 of them were martyred. John died just of old age, kind of natural causes. Exiled for the faith, but not martyred for it. But the other 11, they were martyred for it. The verse there, 2 Peter 1.16, We did not follow cleverly devised fables, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, you could maybe make the argument, okay, maybe you've got one guy and Jesus so duped this guy that the guy is willing to die for him. Even this kind of horrible, kind of martyrdom death, not just like being beheaded or being shot or something. Uh, crucifixion and some of these other things were extremely painful, long and drawn out, not quick, designed to give the maximum amount of pain and suffering to a person before they died. And this happened over a period of like 50 years. So maybe you have one guy, but then when people start dying, and you're one of the guys who died 50 years in, not five years in, and you see what's happened to like nine other guys, you're going to think to yourself, you know, crucifixion just wasn't in my life plan. Maybe it's time to just admit that this was a hoax, so I don't have to get nailed to a cross and die. But they didn't. None of them. They all died. You don't die like this for a lie. Certainly not a group of people. Certainly not in these ways. The resurrection is also the best explanation for worship changing for thousands of Jews. So keep in mind, for the for the Jews, Jesus was the fulfillment of all that their Old Testament had, all the prophecies, all the law, all these things. So you would think, okay, 
So they'd been going in this direction. Jesus comes along, fulfills everything. So they're going to keep going in the direction, same direction, with maybe just a minor tweak, like they'll focus more on Christ specifically rather than God in general. But that's not the case. Worship changed in very significant ways. Worship that had happened the same way for thousands of years, dictated by God in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So this wasn't stuff they made up. This was stuff they got from the mouth of God, and now they changed it. They changed the day of worship. The Sabbath was on Saturday. The Christian church worshiped on Sunday. They no longer needed the temple, so Jews went to the temple to worship, if possible, if they lived by the temple. Now, the Jews in Jerusalem You see, at the beginning, they go to the temple some, but as time goes on, they realize, wait, this isn't necessary, and then they don't go to the temple anymore. And when the temple's destroyed in A.D. 70, they don't fall apart. It's like, well, you know, maybe I like the temple, it was beautiful, I'm a little sad to see it go, but in terms of worship, that doesn't matter. God doesn't live in that temple. They include Gentiles something the Jews did not do prior to that. There's a new object of worship, Jesus Christ, which God says in Exodus and Deuteronomy, to worship anything or anyone other than me is blasphemy and sin. And so they are now worshiping Jesus Christ, which means either they've all become heretics or Jesus Christ actually was God. They have new sacraments that focus on the death and resurrection of God. Communion, uh, and baptism, things that did not exist before that. At least communion didn't. Baptism did a little bit, but it meant something different and uh, happened in different ways. So you see these changes too. The resurrection is also the be- is the best explanation, and the objections are weak. So there are objections, of course. There are always objections, but they're weak. The first one, you may have heard of some of these, you may not. Jesus did not die on the cross, but merely swooned. And so the explanation here is, well, Jesus lost a lot of blood on the cross. He was hanging out in the elements and the sun and whatever else. And so he swooned, like he fainted, a pretty deep faint, almost like a coma, but not quite. And then, after he swooned, they thought he was dead. They pulled him off the cross, buried him in a tomb. But now he's like wrapped in these linens really tightly, and the tomb is cool, and the cool of the tomb revived him. And then, even though he'd lost so much blood... And scripture says he was beaten to the point where you couldn't recognize he was human. You look at him, he didn't look like a man anymore. He'd been beaten so badly, had so much of his flesh torn off of his body, he didn't even look human. But somehow, after he swooned, he woke up in the tomb. And it was refreshing, and he felt great, and was able to take all these burial claws off and move the stone that weighed hundreds of pounds and walk out of the tomb. So that, they think, is a more reasonable explanation than that he rose from the dead. They didn't merely die, he didn't die, but he swooned. And if you know anything about crucifixion at that time, if you were a Roman soldier and you were in charge of a crucifixion and the person being crucified didn't die, you got crucified in their place. So there was very strong motivation to make sure people were actually dead. So that wasn't a mistake Roman soldiers made, because if you made it once, it was the last mistake you would make. And other soldiers would be sure not to make the same one. Second, Jesus didn't rise and his body was stolen. Okay, so if he didn't rise, his body was stolen. You've got the problem of getting the body, first of all, with soldiers guarding it and the heavy stone and all that, but assume for the moment you can do that. Now Christians start being persecuted and they start dying. So if they stole the body and all these things are happening, why don't they produce the body? 
Why don't they say, okay, you know, we had this thing going, we thought it was good, we didn't know we were all going to start being killed, so we lied, we actually stole the body, here it is. Or here's where we buried it, you can go dig it up and see. Third, Jesus was actually a twin. And his twin brother, or someone who looked exactly like him, died in his place, or Jesus was the one who died and this other guy took his place. Okay, so... If Jesus is the one who died, who in their right mind is going to think to themselves, so the Romans hated him and had him crucified. The Jews hated him and had him crucified. You know, I think I should take his place and pick up where he left off. Wouldn't that be great? I can go and teach the same kinds of things he taught, do the same types of things he did. What could possibly go wrong? Or, if Jesus was the one who was still alive afterwards, that they did a swap and someone else died, who's going to do that for someone? Jesus comes up to someone and says, you know, Jesse, so I had this great thing going, but it's kind of going south, and I think I'm going to die. So how do you feel about being crucified in my place? Because you look just like me. And then I can do this thing where I can pretend I rose from the dead and keep going. That work for you? No. No one's going to do that. Or, Jesus' followers hallucinated his resurrection. And this is where some of the comments Luke and Paul made come into play. It's like, okay, people have hallucinations, that happens. So could one of Jesus' followers had, have one time hallucinated his resurrection? Sure, possibly. Could 500 people simultaneously have the same group hallucination? To the point where Paul is confident saying, I'll give you their names. Most of them are alive. Go talk to any one of them. They'll all give you the same story. Could the 12 all have had the same group hallucination? No. Group hallucination doesn't happen. So those are some of the objections. There are more. Those are some of the popular ones today throughout history. There have been a lot of them. It's interesting to see uh, the, the body being stolen was actually the lie that was told at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. Like, that was the lie the religious rulers, when they find out the tomb is empty, they're like, well, this is a big problem. Like, we don't want people thinking he's alive, because now this thing is just going to keep going, and we're trying to quash this and have it stop. We don't want people teaching in his name. We don't want this blasphemy going on. So we're going to pay you. Just tell them the body was stolen. We're going to pay the guards that were guarding the tomb. Tell them you fell asleep. Someone came, they stole the body. We'll protect you from the Roman authorities so they won't kill you for failing to guard the tomb. But just spread that lie, because we can't have this continue. We can't have this going on. These other explanations, the objections, they're weak. None of these are a stronger explanation than the resurrection. And none of these explanations fit the data you see of the changed lives of the apostles, of what the gospel is, what it accomplishes. The resurrection is the best explanation for that. The explanation that death is no longer something to fear because it's been conquered is the only explanation that fits the behavior of the disciples and the apostles afterwards. None of these other ones work. None of these other ones. So, there's some of the apologetic of Paul's life. 
some of the things that we see, some of the things. The, Paul, the resurrection is not just hope for them. It's not just an explanation for them. It's for us as well. Obviously, those 500 aren't alive anymore. We can't go and ask them. But we have the confidence of what we see in Scripture. We see the changed lives of the apostles. We see them saying, hey, go talk to these people. You don't have to take my word for it. There's hundreds of people that all saw them at the same time, all heard the same message, talked to them. You see the lives of the twelve. You see the life of Paul, a murderer, a terrorist, transformed. Peter, a coward and a liar, transformed. And on and on with all the others. So that's the apologetic. So for those of us who have been saved, salvation and repentance leads to deeds. What we see in Acts, the transformed lives, these are not things that they saw Jesus raised from the dead and they thought, wow, that's so great, I'm going to do all these good things now and then God will give me that same salvation. No. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Two big things to note in this text. Sanctification is by faith. Faith comes first, sanctification comes second. The, trans the life transformation, the behavioral change, comes after salvation after belief not before repentance and turning comes first deeds follow out of that those who are believers are transformed there is life change that happens it's not always quite as uh, dramatically shown as in paul's life not all of us were physically murdering people before coming to christ so you don't always see that change externally but the change is there transformation happens and you see it in small ways maybe the way someone talks someone who is sarcastic all the time and now speaks with compassion towards people someone who is angry all the time or violent and now that's changed you see change and you see that take place over time you see god continue to refine people continue to sanctify is the word that's used in scripture but never forget that those deeds in keeping with repentance are an outflow of that transformation. Repentance and turning to God leads to good works. It's not the other way around. Good works don't come first. They come second. Repentance, a good uh, explanation that you turn, a definition that I like is repentance is a long obedience in a single direction. You see that in Paul, who he was, he makes a complete 180. And that complete 180, that lasts the rest of his life. But that didn't come from his own power. Look at the stuff that he suffered that came from God. God got to him. God revealed himself to him on the Damascus Road. God transformed him. God saved him. And through that, after that, came deeds, came that repentance, that lifelong shift and turning. Salvation and repentance leads to deeds. It leads from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not a believer, you are dead in your sin. You are under the power of Satan. You are not in complete control of your own life, of your own desires. 
You do not just freely make choices without outside influence. You are being influenced and controlled by the power of Satan. You are being influenced and controlled by sin. But, if that's you, know that just like Paul, who is a murderer and a terrorist, just like all of us in this room who believe, who have done evil, whether evil in deed or in thought or in heart or in mind, that you too can be saved. Jesus is speaking to you right now through me, through Scripture, saying, you're here this morning, and like Paul, you're a murderer, whether physically or just in heart, in thought, in desire at various times in your life. But my son Jesus died for you. You can believe that right now. You can be transformed right now. That U-turn can happen right now. That shift from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Just like with Paul on the Damascus Road, he doesn't see Christ and then think, okay, now I have to go do these rituals, or I have to read these Bible verses, or I have to pray all these prayers, I have to do all this stuff. It's like, no, God came to him. Jesus said, Paul, what are you doing? You're persecuting me. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Believe. Jesus is speaking to you today. Believe. If you're sitting here and you have believed, be encouraged. Continue to believe. Continue to have faith and trust and hope in who Christ is and what he's done and the fact that we believe in a God who raises the dead. He proved it by raising Jesus and he'll raise us as well. As we go through life, as things are difficult, remember, we do not hope ultimately in this life, we hope in eternity. And it's not wrong to pray when things are bad. When you find out you have cancer, it's not wrong to pray that God would heal that. God cares about all of our life. He cares about our physical health. He cares about our well-being. He cares about our families and our friends. He cares about work situations, relationship situations with other people. But more than that, he cares about eternity. And he knows that things can be bad in this life from a temporal, temporary perspective. But eternally, those things can bear much fruit. As we see with the most horrible thing that happened in time, Jesus dying. And what great things came out of that for all of us. Salvation. The possibility of reconciliation to God that we who once were far are now brought near. For all of us, whether for the first time or the millionth time, may we turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, believing and being sanctified hope that one day we will be with God, never again to fear death or pain or suffering, for those things will all be washed away. Let's pray.